Welcome to our Lord's. Welcome to those of you that are watching at home. I was sitting here having a number of people reached out to me over the last week and said, I won't be there. It's fall break. It's fall break. And I said, the glory's coming. So when we're in the third heaven, I'll send you a text. So I was just pondering that this morning. And truthfully, this hasn't been a a big struggle of mine um, at all because I want to be indifferent to numbers. But all I know is I'm here this morning. Are you here this morning? And so I was just kind of musing on that, how churches get fixated on things like that. We got to be big, we got to be loud, we got to be flashy, and man, we got to have 2,000 people there every Sunday or it's not church. And I was just thinking in scripture of who got to see the Lord's glory and when. And so I began to think about Exodus, Exodus 33. And Moses was this man who was ruined for the Lord's presence. The text says that he would spend every free moment he had in the tabernacle, this tent, gazing on the Lord's glory and communing with God. And he was like a friend who knew the Lord face to face. And yet at the end of his life, he was saying, Lord, show me your glory. Exodus 33, 18, show me your glory. And what I want to say is, Moses, haven't you seen it? (laughs) Many, many, many times. But he got to see the glory one-on-one with the Lord. And then I thought in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration. And who was there with Jesus on the mountain when the glory of God shone from the face of Christ? Who was there? How many were there? Three people his closest companions and confidants. And so I was just musing on that. The Lord said, I will show my glory to one or to three or to 2,000. So I just want us to have that, that attitude, and we're going to look into the Scriptures for a little bit, and then we got a little more time to worship afterwards. And I want us to think about that, that we press into God, whether it's one or two or 222, it doesn't matter. We press in to his presence and we long like Moses did, show us your glory. Show us your glory. I'm already preaching. Show us your glory. And then we'll come back and we'll say that to him because we're going to look at the next section in the Apostles' Creed where there's great glory. It's rather hidden at the beginning, but the Lord is going to show us some things about his glory. So we're uh, in week four of our series, and before we turn to that, I just want to say a few things about what God's doing among us. We're in the process of becoming a vineyard church. We're an RCA church, Reformed Church in America right now, and we're in the process of graciously leaving the RCA and becoming a vineyard church, and I just want to remind us of that. It's in process, and we're following all the guidelines that the RCA requires, but that is still underway even with COVID happening. So we're corresponding with them and trying to figure out what next steps are with COVID happening. Another 
wonderful thing happening among us is, do you remember we planted a church in Guam? We sent the Milners about two months ago, and I spoke with them again this last week, and they are doing really well. There's more to come. Um, I think they're going to video in. They have to wake up at about 2 a.m. in their pajamas, and we're going to have them video uh, live feed in the next few weeks, and that's in their court. I keep saying, when are you ready? When are you ready? So that will happen. So let's look at uh, the Apostles' Creed, and if you look back here behind, want to wave your hand at me, Tony. There's some handouts here, some bulletins that have the Apostles' Creed on it. So maybe you can grab one. Maybe you already have yours in your Bible. Maybe you've memorized it. And we are working our way through the Apostles' Creed, which is basically a summary of the Apostles' teaching. It's biblical language brought together. We talked about there's one million words in the Bible. In the Old and New Testament, there's roughly one million words. And in the Apostles' Creed, there's 100 words. And so this is a synopsis of the Christian faith from creation to redemption to the second coming of Christ. And so really, it's not meant to do anything other than be a guide as we read scripture for the early church, this has been used for 1800 years, particularly in the Western part of the world. And it's meant to be a guide. So as you read scripture, it keeps things balanced. It's like a filter through which you're viewing things. So if strange teaching is cropping up, maybe even about the person of Jesus, it's losing what Liam prayed, his humanity and his divinity, well, this serves as a corrective. The Apostles' Creed is a helpful guide for us as we read and immerse ourselves in Scripture. The creed actually tells a story. Why don't you look at it here? begins with, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified. He died. He was buried. He descended to the dead. This is what we're going to talk about today. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Friends, this tells the biblical story. So it's not just a creed, not just a synopsis, but this is our story. And it's centered on the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as we look into this section today, I want us to think about this is the most beautiful story that's ever been told. It's the most amazing story, the idea that the holy God, the creator of the universe, exalted above all else, would come and get involved in our stuff. Even beyond that, who would identify with us by becoming a human being and dying on our behalf and sending the Holy Spirit to be with us so that we might live like him. This is an amazing story, isn't it? It is the good news. It's the gospel that we have to share with the world. Today happens to be one of the most difficult 
parts of the creed. So those of you that are here, the remnant over fall break, we're going to dig into something. And I just want to ask by show of hands, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on Holy Saturday? What was happening? So we've got one. Anyone else? What was happening when Christ was in the tomb between Good Friday? All right, so it looks like six of you. Okay, this is not a topic that we hear a lot about, but it's important if we're going to be people of the scriptures, people of the book, that we look at the full counsel, the full teaching of the Bible. And frankly, this is really, really important. And we don't hear much about it at all. We just don't. So part of what we do here at Our Lords is we typically teach through a passage or a book of the Bible, and we cover everything that's in it. So that's what we're doing with the creed. We're going to grapple with some tough concepts and tough ideas, but you'll see on the other side, there's great beauty in it. There may be questions. We should always have more questions. We're not know-it-all people. The more you study this, the more you realize God is massive. His word is deep. He always blows our minds. There is always more to learn. But we're going to delve into this phrase here. He descended to the dead right in the middle of the creed. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we're going to see that there's rich, rich stuff here, very applicable stuff in these four phrases, descent, raising, ascending, and seating. Father, I just uh, acknowledge the power and the depth of your word, the mystery of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the mystery of your word. And so we humble ourselves and we ask for the spirit of truth to guide us, to teach us, to transform us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Some of you that grew up saying the Apostles' Creed, I know Esther did, you would often say Christ descended to hell. And that really is an outdated translation. Like many words, we have to update them. It's an outdated translation to say he descended to hell. The word actually that's used there is trying to do justice to an Old Testament word and a New Testament word. The Old Testament word was shale, and it was the place of the dead. And in the Old Testament, there wasn't a full-fledged doctrine of resurrection, but you knew when you died, you went to Sheol, this place of the dead. It was actually a, a place of shade, is what it was called, the place of shades. And then in the New Testament, you have a more fully developed doctrine of resurrection in the afterlife, and the place was called Hades, and it was a temporary dwelling place for the dead before they would stand before God, before his Messiah and either enter the place of paradise with him or the place of Gehenna, hell. And so what the, the creed is saying here is he descended to the place of the dead. Now, I want us to look in Scripture. Where does this come from? It comes from the Bible. Look at Ephesians 4. There's a handful of passages. Ephesians 4, 7 through 10 talks about this. So as the early church was reflecting and meditating prayerfully and putting some of these creeds together to disciple and train new believers, 
they, based on their reading of Scripture, said, this is so important, it's going to be a part of the creed for all time. So Ephesians 4 is one of the passages. And what I'd like to do here, if this is all right with you, I want to work through this rather quickly, and I want to talk about the descent, the resurrection, the ascent, and then I want to go back and really drill down into this. How does that sound? Sound okay? So we're going to look at one passage, and then we're going to make our way through the other words that describe these moments in the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And then we're going to go back and look at a few passages just to let you know here. So Ephesians 4, 7 through 10 speaks of the descent of Christ and the ascent of Christ. And it talks about really a victory over his enemies. Ephesians 4, 7 through 10 says this, but, and this is the Apostle Paul explaining to the church at Ephesus, but each of us was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Many things we could say here, but really the image is from an ancient conquering king. And the king comes in and defeats his enemies and releases his captives. And so when it says there, through his crucifixion and through his descent, through his burial, verses 9 and 10, he's going to the place of the dead. Now, I want to make sure that we note here, we can't say more than what Scripture tells us. And we'll see a few other passages. The Apostle Peter is going to write another passage that's really key to this. And we can't press it for more than what it says. We can always speculate and we can guess and we can read what other Christians have said over the last 2,000 years. But friends, this is, this is the extent of it. So we always have to be cautious, not dogmatic. And we're going to be asking that question, where did Jesus go? What did he say and who did he say it to? And in the end, we really don't know a whole lot. We just know he did it and he was victorious. He was the conquering king through his life, through his burial on Holy Saturday. What's interesting, and we don't talk about this much, this is tucked here in Ephesians 4, which is a great passage about the gifts of God including the gift of the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, the pastor, and the teacher to the church. And we usually don't make this link here that all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, including the fivefold ministry that happens until Christ's return, is connected to what? According to this passage. His descent. We just don't think about that much. So his descent to do what he's doing, ends up as the conquering king releasing the gifts of the Holy Spirit to the church for all time. So there's obviously something critically important about this passage. Again, a second thing that we're looking at, and then we'll go back and spend more time on that. 
but to do justice to what the creed says that on the third day he rose again. Again, we're telling the gospel story. So I want us to look at a few passages here. Look at Mark 9, 30 through 32. And all I'm doing is looking in a very cursory fashion at some of the key texts in this part of the creed. Mark 9, 30 through 32. And what Jesus is doing here is he's speaking prophetically. He's forecasting the idea that he's going to be raised from the dead. Mark 9, 30 through 32. This is the word of the Lord. They went on from there and passed from Galilee. He did not want anyone to know it. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, listen to what he's forecasting for them. The Son of Man is to be destroyed betrayed into human hands and they will kill him and three days after being killed he will rise again but they did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him so Jesus is telling them I'm going to rise from the dead and then look at Mark 16 1 to 8 again we're just looking at some of the key points in the gospels Mark 16 1 to 8 I'm not going to read the whole thing, but essentially what's happening here, these are the three first witnesses to the resurrection. And guess who they were? Women. So in the ancient world, that was very significant. The Lord says the first witnesses to my resurrection are going to be women, one of whom he had cast out multiple demons. There's definitely a story tucked in there. So Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, they're going to the tomb to anoint Christ's body because he really died, as we saw last week in the Apostles' Creed. He was a man. He was the God-man, Christ Jesus, but he died a physical death. So he's buried in the tomb, and someone had rolled back the large stone, and an angel was there and told them, there at verse 8, do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He is not here. So we're seeing in the creed, he descended to the dead. We'll come back and look at that. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. This is the foundation of the New Testament. This is the foundation of who we are. This is the essence of of who we are as the Lord's apostolic people. Look at Acts 2.32 again. We're looking at on the third day he rose again. Acts 2.32. Look how central this is to the life and the teaching and the preaching of the early church. Acts 2.32. This Jesus God raised up, says the apostle Peter. And of that, all of us are witnesses. So if you want to hear what the church is from its beginning, from the very inception, we are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus. That's who we are. That's who they were. That's who we were, who we are. We are witnesses to the resurrection. We could talk about this at length, but I want to move on to the next phrase there. He ascended into heaven. Look at Luke 24, beginning at verse 50 through 53. 
Christ rose again. He ascended into heaven. Luke 24, 50 through 53. At the end of Luke's gospel, he says this. Then Christ led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, his disciples who were with them. And while he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple blessing God. And then the gospel of Luke transitions into the book of Acts. So they witnessed his resurrection, and from the beginning, the church was a people of worship. Christ ascended into heaven, and Acts 1 talks about that. Something else we don't think about much, look at John 14, 16 through 17. Christ's ascension to heaven signals the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So without the ascension, Christ ascending into the Father's presence and sending the promise of the Father, we have no outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the ascension of Christ as a demonstration to his followers, a demonstration to the world for all time, it's verification that this is the Messiah. I've raised him from the dead. The power of death could not hold him, and I'm pouring out my spirit. Actually, I'm going to wait and not read John 14, 16 through 17, but it's basically Christ promising that there would be another advocate, the spirit of truth who would abide with his disciples and be with them forever. Let's do look at Acts 2, 33. So we're back to Acts 2. Again, Acts chapter 2 is the apostle Peter's first sermon. And it is shot through with the stuff that's in the creed. So the people who are crafting the creed are looking at some of these early sermons and some of those other creeds that are embedded in the New Testament and basically crafting a creed that does justice to what the biblical text says. So Acts 2.33, Peter says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. So Christ ascended to the Father, the Spirit was poured out, and then the next phrase, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Many texts speak to this. It signals the fact that Christ's earthly mission was complete, and now a whole new mission begins, and it's him seated at the Father's right hand. To be seated at the Father's right hand means multiple things, but it means that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we were singing, right, Liam? He is the King. He is the ascended King who has poured out with the Father the Spirit. Philippians 2, 9 speaks of this, that because Christ humbled himself, he was exalted to the highest place. The right hand of the Father symbolizes that the place of great honor, and he's been given the name above all names. Look at Romans 8.34, then we're going to switch gears back to Holy Saturday. Look at Romans 8.34. So Christ is ascended. He's seated at the Father's right hand. What is he doing? One thing that he's doing 
is praying for the church. Romans 8.34 says this, who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. So church, we have an ascended king who's been given the name above all names, who lives to make intercession, to pray on our behalf. Therefore, the church is unstoppable because of the prayer of Christ, the great intercessor. Jesus continues to advance his kingdom through us, and he's praying and and pulling and believing for us to follow him as he builds his church through us. So there really is the descent, the ascent, seated at the right hand of the Father. And I want to go back and look. You want to look a little bit more at some of the texts that are kind of puzzling? Let's do it together. We looked at Ephesians 4, 7 through 10. So are you with me on this? We looked at some of those major elements in the creed, which is the preaching of the New Testament. It's our message. And now we're going to look at a couple of other texts that speak about the descent of Christ. Look at 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. This one's especially important here. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. And again, we're putting this in our minds and our hearts, meditating on Scripture together, and then we're going to come and worship the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Good morning, Isaac. Good to see you, dude. So put your thinking cap on here. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring you to God. Now catch this. Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey when God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. So the text is showing us here, Christ suffered to bring us to God once for all. He died in the flesh, look at the text, in his body, but God made him alive in the realm of the Spirit. Ponder that for a moment. So Christ dies physically in his body. So when it says there at verse 19, in which it's talking about in the realm of the spirit, in the spiritual realm, Christ makes a proclamation to the spirits in prison. Wow, we could tease this out for hours, but we're not going to do that. I just want to point out a few things and bring it to the point we really don't know exactly what his proclamation was. But I think scripture gives us some clues. Look at Revelation 1, 17 through 18. Are you seeing some things here that maybe you haven't seen before or thought about? Want to connect some things, put some pieces together. Christ has died, a physical death is buried, 
And during this time on Holy Saturday, he is in the realm of the Spirit. Now, people could say, well, I thought to be absent from the bodies, to be with the Lord. Well, yeah, well, you can talk to the Lord about this later. I'm not sure. It's a great mystery. The life of Christ, the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, the ascension of Christ, all of it is an mind-blowing mystery that you can devote 70 years of your life pouring over Scripture, and you're still not going to fully plumb the depths of it. But we're just scratching the surface a little bit. He's declaring a message, the Apostle Peter says. Revelation 1 is Christ appearing to another apostle, the Apostle John, and he says something that perhaps was giving us a clue into what maybe he said during that time on Holy Saturday. Look at Revelation 1, 17 through 18. And again, this is Christ appearing to the Apostle John. So when John saw him, he says, I fell at his feet as though dead, but Christ placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and see, I am alive forever and ever. And then catch this last phrase. And I have the keys of death, which is essentially the keys over the power of death itself. And he says, and I have the keys of Hades, the place. So Christ is saying in this text, I was dead, I am alive, and I have authority and power over death in Hades. Perhaps, friends, this is part of what he was proclaiming in that moment. This very thing. Now, if the text <laughs> it will not get any easier, it's equally as difficult. Who are the spirits in prison? There at the end of verse 19. Well, the greatest commentators on Scripture don't really know because the text does not tell us, does it? Does it say? We can give it our best biblical guess and hypothesis here. I tend to think perhaps, hear me on this, it was a combination of the Old Testament dead. Those people during the Old Testament era Believers and unbelievers who were in the place of the dead and fallen angels. It's interesting, the Apostle Peter is referencing the Noah story while this is happening. So Genesis 6, and something happened in Genesis 6 that's very strange. Some of you may have heard people talk about the Nephilim that's mentioned at Genesis 6-4. Some great early biblical sci-fi right here. This is strange and peculiar to our minds, but it is the Word of God. There's the sons of God who descend and have relations with human beings. And it's part of that Noah flood story there's something wrong happening, and they're influencing and infiltrating God's original design for human beings to reflect his glory and be his image in the earth, and something takes a turn at this point in Genesis 6, and so the Lord has to start over, and so the apostle Peter is referencing this 
when Christ is making his proclamation, I think he's proclaiming something to the folks, the people, the human beings in the Old Testament era, but I think that it was also some of these angelic beings and fallen ones. And so it's a message of victory for both of them. Again, I know this causes the mind to tilt a little bit, but hey, reading the Bible is fun. Hey, young people, learn to read the Bible. Give yourself to it now. I know Esther provides those youth Bibles, the illustrated Bible. Give yourself to this. There's nothing more fun and rewarding and exciting than giving yourself to this. Read and learn and study the scriptures. It's why we're spending time looking at something even puzzling like this. So you see here, Christ is making a proclamation. And I think he's saying, I have defeated death itself. He has swallowed up death. He's turned death into life. And he's making that declaration. It was interesting, Jake and I over the weekend were in Arkansas and we were 130 feet underground. I talked him into going to a cave. He wasn't very excited about it, but I said, bro, please, let's go to this cave together. And while we were in the depths of this cave, I began to ponder this text. So we're 130 feet underground in this cavernous, cavernous place. They joked about turning the lights on and off on us, which they didn't. I kind of wish they would have. So we could have been immersed in the darkness. But as we came up out of this cave through all these various channels and we were coming up this path, there was a huge gate in front of us with a massive padlock on it. And I began to think what would it be like to be locked in here? What if the guide lost the key? No cell service. We're stuck in here. And I began to think about, praise Jesus. He has the keys to death and Hades. And he can liberate us and free us from our darkness. Christ is the living one. There's one more text here. I want to look at it very quickly. How are you doing? Doing all right? Again, I know this is strange stuff to our minds, but we need to talk about it, and we need to think about it, and we need to have an answer for people that might ask. Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. Let's look at this. We'll end with this. The worship team can get ready. Hebrews 2, 14 through 16. Again, shedding a little bit of light on his descent to the place of the dead, says this, the author of Hebrews, since therefore the children, that's us, share flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels but the descendants of Abraham. 
So Christ shares our flesh and blood. This speaks to the incarnation. But even death itself could not hold him. Christ gets inside of death and blows it up. He changes the whole game for us, friends. So I want us to think here two things as we end. Because of this, we live differently. And we die differently. How do we live differently? I want you to think about it for a moment based on this. How do we live differently? Christ who has the power of an indestructible life, pours out the spirit into the heart of the church and we get to live like he did. He makes us holy people. He fills us with his presence, with his power. He sends us out to be witnesses of his resurrection. Wherever we are, whatever our walk of life is. But friends, we also die in a different way. What do I mean by that? The world is gripped with fear. Think about it right now. I mean, there is absolute frenzy and fear and panic over death. That is not our portion, friends. As Christians, the worst thing that can happen to us is we die. And what happens when we die? We're with the Lord. We've been given something that destroys all fear of death. We will live again in the Lord's presence. And so we live differently in the power of the resurrection filled with the Holy Spirit proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom and we can die differently. We can actually die with confidence. And we don't hear enough about this. We wanna take death and put it in the back room and not talk about it. Now I don't wanna make light of it. Suffering and death is significant and we don't gloss it over. But friends, we can die with confidence. As a matter of fact, if you ponder your own end, it will change the way that you live. Friends, every day is one step closer. And as your pastor, I want to remind you of that. We don't, there is no fountain of youth that people have surmised about. Our fountain of youth is the resurrection of Christ. We will be raised one day, and we can live without fear. So, Lord, we pray that you would take the power of your word and plant it deeply within us, that we would, in fact, live differently, and that we would die differently, realizing that you are the first fruits, you are the resurrected king, and will follow in your steps and live with you and be with you in love forever. We pray in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Let's take some time to worship in view of this, and then we'll have some ministry time.